Radio Mano Papachango. days of winter have arrived in Portland, Oregon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I can't remember the last time I saw sun, uh, but my memory sucks. So it could have been just four or five days ago, but it's been a while. Uh, it's I like it. I like waking up and looking out the window and seeing it gray and dark um, because I feel like uh, it's not that big of a waste that I spend the day sitting in my office doing things like this, like talking into a microphone, and when I finish this, I'll be looking at papers and organizing shit. We're in final days here, final days. All sorts of things are happening. If I were into astrology, I'd say Saturn is returning or there's some sort of planetary alignment happening in my life because lots of things are coming together here. We're, as you know, we're getting ready to leave Portland and uh, meander back towards Spain. We won't get to Spain till March. We get our apartment back March 1st. So we'll uh, have a couple of months to to kill January and February. Not sure if we're going to go to Southeast Asia or um, maybe Colombia, maybe Mexico, someplace warm for sure. And um, We'll see uh, how that how that pans out. I haven't really given that much thought yet, but we're going to go somewhere warm and wait for our buddy to to leave our apartment in Spain so we can move in. So we'll be in Spain for the spring, which is a really nice time to be in Barcelona. The book is almost finished. I'm uh, I just printed out all the chapters the other day, and uh, so now I'm looking through them and trying to get a tighter organization and I'm in the stage now where you cut 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 tighten it up tighten it up reorganize because when I'm writing I just I don't try to think a lot about where this is fitting in and does that really flow from what I just finished because that slows down the creative juices and uh, when I'm writing I just want to write 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 and worry about it later and now it's later so now is when I spread it all out and read it again and and realize like I wrote this chapter called um, Welcome to Lucky Plastic World and uh, the title comes from a photo I took in India there was a in some market in India there was a, a booth and it was called Lucky Plastic World there was a big sign and he sold like buckets and plastic shit I just thought it was hilarious you know how happy he was about Plastic World and uh, I wrote a chapter with that title, and it was all about this experience I had in New York when I lived there in the 80s. I met this woman, and uh, we went out for dinner and had a really good time. She was older than me. I was in my mid-20s. She was probably in her mid-30s. And uh, we had a really good time, and then... Uh, sort of, you know, at that stage at the end of the evening where you say, hey, we should do this again sometime. You know, that was a lot of fun. Uh, and she got real serious and said, 
okay, I need to I need to explain something to you. Here's my situation. And her situation was that she was, I don't know if she was married or just a long-term relationship, but she lived with a man, her partner, and uh, she wasn't cheating on him. She was, he had leukemia and had been getting chemotherapy and it had basically wiped out, it had made him infertile. And before he was diagnosed with leukemia, they had um, decided to have children. And so they were trying to go ahead and have children anyway, but he wasn't biologically able to be the father. And so she was basically... Um, interviewing me for the job of biological father that evening. And so she dropped all this on me and said, I'd really, I'd love to see you again, but um, I'd love to invite you to our place and you can meet my husband, boyfriend, whatever. And uh, that's our situation. (laughs) Now, uh, you know, that was uh, 25 years ago. I've I've had a lot of interesting and bizarre pro- proposals since then, or propositions, I guess is the word. Uh, it wouldn't freak me out as much today, but that was pretty shocking at the time. And uh, my first impulse, of course, was to flee, but I don't honestly, if I'm being completely honest with you, I can't tell you to what extent it was just really wanting to fuck her that made me ignore the bizarreness of the situation and to what extent it was interest in anything weird. It was some combination of blind horniness and reckless curiosity, which pretty much sums up my 20s now that I think of it. Anyway, I went to dinner. I met the guy and, you know, to say it was awkward would be understatement of the century. It was um, very strange. I was the first finalist who had made it to the have dinner with the husband stage, apparently. And, um, you know, as soon as I met the guy, uh, any sliver of possibility that I was going to participate in this was gone. The guy was seriously sick. You know, all his hair was gone and and he was white as a ghost and very, very thin. And um, I don't know what his prognosis was, but, you know, the situation changed from like, wow, this is cool and potentially getting laid to, oh my God, this is like a life or death kind of thing. And these people are dealing with really heavy shit. And I, you know, it's way, way more complicated than I can possibly wrap my head around. Um, But anyway, we had dinner and a conversation and the guy, what he did for a living was airbrushing photographs. Now, those of you who are under... 40 probably have no idea what airbrushing photographs was, but before digital photography, uh, that's how you uh, removed imperfections from photographs and, and, and you know, um, altered, uh, made slight alterations to photographs. So, you know, you would remove blemishes from the skin. Someone has a mole or hair is out of place or something. You could sort of do that through airbrushing before... Photoshop 
made it so easy. So that's what this guy did for a living. And he was a freelancer. He did it at home. And I was really interested in photography. So we talked about that a lot. In fact, I was doing, um, I was taking uh, classes in photography at the National Geographic uh, headquarters, or actually their headquarters is in Washington, but they had something going on in New York where they had staff photographers coming up and teaching. And so I was in, in the midst of all that. And so we talked a lot about his gig and uh, it turns out that his biggest clients were Playboy and Penthouse. Now, again, this is a thing, you know, if you're under 40, you probably didn't grow up looking at Playboy penthouse magazines for, for those men I'm talking to. Um, but guys my age, that was a, sort of a staple. There was no Internet porn. So, you you know, somebody's dad had a stash of Playboy somewhere and you'd steal it and we'd all go out in the woods and look at them and, you know, imagine our futures, <laughs> the glorious future. And... uh yeah, yeah. So uh, his gig was f- uh, doing the the airbrushing on these photographs. And what he told me really kind of revolutionized my understanding of the world. What he explained to me was that what they did was women with large breasts, they, they on the set, they would take an ace bandage, wrap it around the woman's neck, loop it under her breasts and back up around her neck and tie it so that there was a bandage holding her breasts up. So if she's standing without the bandage, her breasts would hang down several inches lower just naturally because of the weight of them. But with these air, uh, with these um, uh, ace bandages, it lifted them up. So it's like she's wearing a bra. And then his job was to remove the ace bandage from the photo. So you never saw that. So what you saw was something that doesn't exist in nature. Large breasts that are somehow defying gravity. The other thing that he told me, which blew my mind, was that a lot of times the women that you saw in photographs were not, they didn't exist at all. What they did was they took one woman's face and you know and they sort of cut her off at the neck and then they merge that to another woman's torso so you've got her breasts and shoulders and arms and all that and then another woman's ass and legs and pussy and everything so you're actually looking at a merged image of three different women and you're saying to yourself oh, i want to find a woman like that someday that's what i want that doesn't exist, man. Doesn't fucking exist. So that got me. That really stuck in my memory. Why am I telling you the story? Ah, because I wrote a chapter about that for the book. And now that I'm reading the book, I realize that chapter has no place at all in the book. There's, you know, I, I, I was trying to use it as an example of how civilization creates all these unrealistic expectations and aspirations and you know, we're, we're on a wheel running like a rat on a wheel trying to catch something that's, that doesn't even exist, but it seems a little far-fetched now that I, now that I read it in retrospect, but it's still a good story to tell you. So welcome to lucky plastic world, ladies and gentlemen, since I've started reading these, uh, reports from Amazon, 
people have been ordering more stuff through my affiliate links at uh, chrisryanphd.com, for which I thank you so much. This is a really wonderful way to support the podcast. Um, you know, it's just you leveraging the fact that you buy shit at Amazon to sort of force Amazon to give the podcast some money to support the podcast. So it doesn't cost you anything, doesn't cost me anything. And, uh, you know, we just sort of team up and get Amazon to give us some of their some of their money. So uh, thank you very much for doing that. In the last few days, people have bought some interesting stuff. Um, just a random selection of things here. I, I, it would take me all day to read a lot of them. Because the thing is, they don't add up. Each one isn't much money. So it's four or four to seven and a half percent of whatever you spend. So if you're buying something for 10, 15 bucks, which is what most books cost, for example, you know, it's it's not a lot of money. But if a hundred people do that, that adds up. And then if you if you do buy something expensive, it can be a lot of money. So, for example, um, let's see what do we have here today? Somebody bought some Schmidt's natural deodorant, bergamot and lime all day protection and wetness relief, aluminum free. Uh, so that cost them eleven bucks, and seven point five percent goes to the podcast. That's a buck sixty four. Thank you. Someone else bought a clip on instant man bun. Brown. I thought that was a joke. I didn't know they actually existed. Clip on instant man bun. All right. Uh, send us a photo. Whoever bought that, if you hear me, if you hear my voice right now, send me a photo of yourself with a clip on instant man bun and I'll tweet that shit. <laughs> if you if you want to be seen, if you want to blow your cover that that's not a real man bun. Uh, someone bought Magicians of the Gods, the new, uh, the new book by, uh, what's his name? Who's going to be on, uh, Joe Rogan's podcast soon to, to promote this, uh, Graham Hancock. Yeah. Let me know how you like that. Uh, I was just hanging with a buddy in LA who had a copy and, uh, he was, he was quite enthused about it. Uh, let's see what else. Someone else bought a copy of Plays Well in Groups, A Journey Through the World of Group Sex. All right. Hope that works out for you. Uh, here we go. A Lonely Planet Guide to India. Very cool. So those are two travel guides there. One to India and one through the world of group sex. I wonder if it's the same person, if they're planning to have group sex in India. If so, I got some bad news for you. It's not the same India that it used to be back in the days of the, what's the name of that erotic book? The Kama Sutra. Yeah, that was a different India. Uh, here, somebody bought an MSI computer, 18.4-inch laptop. Wow, thank you. And that was over $3,000. And uh, that was almost $4,000. Yeah, nice. Uh, we get 25 bucks from that. Very nice. And then they got a laptop accident protection plan, and we get a cut of that as well. Uh, what else do we have here? <clears throat> Graphics card, uh, external hard drives, beautiful. Someone got a dehumidifier for 190 bucks. We get 14 bucks. Nice. Music. Two things were purchased in the last few days. Um, interesting. One's called Money Shot and the other's called Dirt. I don't know what that says about my audience, but there you go. Somebody bought a GP Percussion B2 Pro Series Bongo set. Clear finish and hickory. 
All right, beat those bongos. That sounds great. I'd, I'd like to get a bongo set. When we get back to Spain, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a drum and do some drumming again. And Cassie wants uh, a guitar. She's got a natural ability with guitar. That's crazy. Uh, what else? Oh, somebody bought an Osprey 4.70 travel backpack. That's a good back- backpack. I wonder if that's the same person going to India. If so, nice. Good choice. Uh, somebody loves their dog, let me tell you, because they bought Wellness Core Natural Grain-Free di- Dry Dog Food, Wild Game Duck Turkey Wild Boar and Rabbit Recipe. That's going to be a happy dog. There's nothing quite as wonderful as feeding a dog good food. There's, it's almost like you feel the pleasure of eating yourself. It's I, I love dogs. I regret sometimes that the way... I mean, I'm I'm happy with my life, but the part that I'm not so happy with is, you know, the what I miss from not being in one place long enough to have dogs. Uh, what else do we have? Somebody's going hunting because they got a stealth cam, uh, six megapixel digital scouting camera, tree bark. I guess that's the what it looks like. It's the camo. They got a wild pack field to freezer game processing set. They got a cable package. They got training socks for MMA, jiu-jitsu, wrestling. They got shock, doctor, double braces, strapless mouth guard. Joe Rogan, are you buying shit through my Amazon affiliate link? Because this sounds like Joe Rogan stuff here. The uh, MMA, the hunting, the stealth cam, all this stuff. He's probably already got all that shit. Anyway, whoever's going uh, going hunting, good luck, and thanks for thinking to buy that shit through my affiliate link. Really helps. All right, the guest this week is a guy named Mark Davis. He's based here in Portland, Oregon, and he is one of the country's leading specialists in um, fecal transplant. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, fecal transplant. He takes, essentially, he takes the shit from someone who's healthy and he does some screening and preparation and whatnot, and then he uh, implants it, is that the right way to say it, uh, in someone who's not healthy. And obviously, this is for specific ailments, uh, particularly uh, C. difficile is uh, an infestation that you can get in your colon of um, a microbe that is very dangerous. 30,000 people die from this every year, I think. We go through the numbers uh, and about half a million are infected. That's in America only. Um, and what happens is when people take a lot of antibiotics, it wipes out the good stuff in your gut and then this nasty stuff gets in there and the nasty stuff is very resistant to antibiotics which is why it can go into an environment that's got these antibiotics in in there and this will really fuck you up so you know they don't know how to treat it and what they've been treating it with just more progressively stronger and stronger antibiotics but of course that's killing off even more of the good stuff so you end up you know, it's the same thing we're doing to the external environment when you clear cut a forest, as is happening in Indonesia and the Amazon and all over the place. You clear cut, you wipe out this rich ecosystem that's got uh, 
millions of years of balance and and interdependency built into it and you replace it with you know palm oil or cattle grazing or whatever it is that you want to be doing it fucks everything up well we're doing the same thing inside our guts we've got an an entire ecosystem in our intestines and antibiotics wipe it out and so then invasive species come in so they found that uh the best way to treat this c difficile infestation is by reintroducing a healthy ecosystem by taking some a healthy person's shit and squirting it up into your colon and once that's up there you get these miraculous recoveries this is a very important, I mean, I know it's, you know, it's snicker inducing in a lot of people, but this is an extremely important area for research. Uh, I'm reading a book that Mark recommended actually called um, the, what's it called, an epidemic of absence. And uh, basically, if you Google hygiene hypothesis, you'll find a lot of uh, research and a lot of writing in this area. The idea being that by trying to protect ourselves from pathogens, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot because we create these imbalanced ecosystems within ourselves. Same thing on our skin, you know, with this antibacterial soap and by pumping antibiotics into our industrial food supply. You know, we think we're creating safety and what we're actually doing is creating much more danger. And there's a lot of evidence that many... Uh, modern ailments are due to this misguided quest for safety and sterility. We're not sterile. We can't exist. Sterile is dead. That's the thing. You know, we want sterility because we're convinced all these little critters are going to kill us. But actually, sterility is death. And we are fucking ourselves over by doing this. There are all sorts of things from asthma to depression to obesity, to multiple sclerosis, all sorts of diseases and disorders are at least potentially and partly due to the microbiome within our guts being completely fucked up by the antibiotics and the low fiber diet and all this kind of stuff that we've manipulated much to our detriment. So, I'm excited about this episode. I'm excited about this entire field of research. Um, I might track down and interview some of the other people in this area in the future. I hope you're as interested in this as I am. You know, it's all about shit, right? Good shit. We are living things, and there are living things within us. Each one of us is a walking, talking community, and so... We need to keep that community alive and thriving and as diverse as possible. So that's Mark Davis. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm going to play him in with a song that has been haunting my consciousness for the last few weeks since I first heard it. It's by a band called Monsters of Folk. I'm not sure I love the name of the band. But the song is called Temascal. And it's, you know, I've got a, a file in my YouTube or my um, iTunes folder there called Magic. And it's songs that to me have some, I don't know if you feel this way, but there's some music that's just, 
got something that goes beyond notes and melodies and beats and the, 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 the mechanics of music. There's some spirit captured. There's something that just resonates right down to the spine. And, you know, sometimes it's funky, sometimes it's blues, some, you know, but it's beyond good music. And uh, this is a song, as soon as I heard it, I just had to hear it again and again and again. It's, it captures something that I recognize very deeply. Um, and it's also, it's about, I think it's about travel. It's about spending time in Mexico, hammocks, and there you'll, you'll hear there are scenes. And I think it's also about prehistory. There's, there's a line where he says, I watch you braid your hair. You're from another time when the earth wasn't so angry and God was on our side. Love this tune. Anyway, it's called Temascal, T-E-M-A-Z-C-A-L, and it's uh, by Monsters of Folk. I hope you go buy yourself a copy, patronize the Monsters of Folk, and uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. You, me, and everybody else, we we sort of form our own little microbiome. We... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> We're a healthy community of diverse individuals. I looked at the the download map. There are like 35 people in, where was it, Mongolia, I think, who are downloading this podcast. Whoever you are, thank you. Uh, maybe it's an English class. Maybe people are learning English from listening to me talk about shit. I don't know. But whoever you are out there in the world downloading this podcast, I really appreciate it. It's a, It's an honor to be in your ear hole. Catch you next week. Putting on my power righteous as a rose Underground, come with heavy 
magnets, but it still hasn't been found. Oh, I'm sweating out my secrets in the telescope. The screaming in the kite that the stars about to fall. Looking through the trees, cities and the seas, things we've seen on these on the lawn. They're there and then they go. I am sitting here in Mark Davis's office on a beautiful Portland afternoon, sunny, although I've just been informed that there is absolutely no vitamin D benefits to sitting in the sun in Portland this time of year uh, because the, is, is it the angle of the sun? Exactly, is that, it's the angle of the sun. Even, even a guy as white as me, <laughs> a, a borderline albino is getting no, no benefit from yeah, that sun. Yeah, you could be naked at noon. Naked at noon. Yeah, I, I should verify. Actually, I'm not 100% sure we're in the zero vitamin D today, but certainly throughout most of the winter right. or, or most of the year, actually, in Portland, because of the angle of the sunshine, you're getting no vitamin D. Right. And, um, and dark-skinned people do get less from the same amount of light uh, as white-skinned people, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. The zero is zero. So during the quote-unquote vitamin D winter, doesn't matter your skin type, you get right. none. Um, but during the time when the angle is right, it's harder for darker skinned people to generate the same amount of vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. That's this whole vitamin D deficiency thing is one of those, um, things I read about years ago and I started talking to people about it and everybody just like, yeah, 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 uh-huh. it's bullshit, bullshit. And now, <laughs> I mean, it's probably happened to you. you. You see something and then 10 years later it comes into the mainstream and you just want to like fucking scream. Like, <laughs> I've been telling you this, you idiots. Yeah, yeah. I just read a great paper uh, um, following women with breast cancer for a good long time. And those who were either replete in vitamin D or those who started out vitamin D depleted and made it replete during the time of the study, got their vitamin D levels up, had much better outcomes than the women who had uh, vitamin D deficiency. It's incredible. Yeah, lower mortality rates. So that gives yeah. us some good idea. Keeping your vitamin D levels up is yet another reason. It seems to affect like virtually every system in the body. I mean, it's it's very yeah. um, wide ranging, right? The effects of vitamin D. I've, I've read psychological stuff. 
you know, related to depression, related to healing, or immunological response. Right, or, all of the above. Yeah, yeah, I work a lot with patients with inflammatory bowel disease, right. sort of colitis and Crohn's disease. And it seems like these vitamin D receptors in the gut have a big role in modulating inflammation in the gut, too. Right. So I am always testing vitamin D levels and sometimes making that, uh, you, you know, supplementing it uh, for my IBD patients. Right. Well, let's, let's jump right into that then. Okay. Why are we here? Who are you? What right. do you do? What's your... First of all, are you do-, do I call you Dr. Davis? Well, you know, my dad, despite having a doctoral degree, always just had his students call him John. Right. So I have followed that same tradition. And, you know, I had a patient this morning say, hi, Dr. Davis. I said, please call me Mark. That's, my, that's how I roll. Yeah. Little kids, oftentimes, they're just like, Dr. Mark. <laughs> that's fine, too. Um, and when I publish stuff, I like people to be like, yeah, this is a doctor. Right. You know. But so what's, you have a PhD? No, I'm a naturopathic doctor, or ND. ND. So you may right. have listeners from all over the world. Lots of people may have never even heard of that degree. Right. Um, it's over 100 years old in the United States. The first naturopathic medical school was founded in 1901 in New York. And the Oregon Association of Naturopathic Physicians is over 100 years old. Um, but there's way, way fewer of us. There's maybe like 6,000 of us mm. in, the, in the United States, in, uh, in Canada. Right. Um, and here... Uh, well, the way that we are licensed varies a lot from state to state. Here in Oregon, I do minor surgical procedures. I have a very broad prescriptive practice if I want to prescribe pharmaceuticals to my patients. Um, and in other states, they may not be able to do any minor surgery procedures or prescribe anything. Hmm. Um, and there's every variety for the states that license. And some states don't even license NDs. Um, but we all are all bound by the same philosophy, which is that trying to promote healing in people the same way that we see nature promote healing in people is the best way to do it. Mm. So sometimes I use prescription medicines to try and mimic nature's healing patterns. And oftentimes I'm using herbs or uh, um, concentrated nutrients or probiotics or certain foods or exercise patterns or whatever to try and promote healing in my patients. And in particular, I do this weird thing I'm known for in the naturopathic community and beyond, um, which is I have a lot of expertise using fecal microbiota transplantation, otherwise known as FMT, or fecal transplant, for my patients with a a wide variety of conditions. And so that's why we're here today. Right. Because I do this weird thing. Right. Yeah, that's what really uh, interested me. Uh, We have a mutual friend who... Uh, I was having a beer with him a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that I was writing, I'm working on this book, and I was talking about fecal transplant in the book. And he's like, oh, I know a guy who does that. He's like one of the main guys in the world who does that stuff. So I, I was really excited to, to talk to you about this. It's, it's one of those things that, um, well, you, you can describe it better than me, but it, it's one of those things that sort of freaks people out to think about it. Sure. But at least with the treatment of, um, what is it, C. difficile? Is that, am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, everyone calls it C. difficile. Really, if you're a Latin nerd, it's like C. difficile. Nobody calls it that. So to make it easier, everyone just calls it C. diff. And it's like, what is it, 30,000 people? In the year, a year in the U.S. are infected with no, this? 500,000. And 30,000. And about 30,000 almost die of it yes. every year, year after year. In the U.S. In the U.S. alone. Right, right. And 
the, the standard treatment has been extremely strong doses of antibiotics, yeah. which just make the problem worse. Yeah, the funny thing is what usually causes it is a dose of antibiotics right. that, that alters your healthy gut microbiome or the healthy bacteria that live in your gut, and then it makes you susceptible to get C. diff. And then the typical treatment is to give a, another course of antibiotics. Now, interestingly enough, that actually works about 65% of the time to cure someone's C. diff colon infection, and, and make it stay gone. Two-thirds of the time it works. A third of the time, however, either it doesn't work or people relapse, and then your odds go down the next time. Mm. And every time you don't respond to or relapse from a course of antibiotic, your odds go down even more, right. um, which is why people end up dying of it, right. one of the reasons why. Right. And it tends to affect people who have um, weakened immune system anyway, right? Like older people. Yes, elderly people, infants, people with HIV. Uh, you know, it's worse in people with um, kidney disorders or kidney failure, which counts a lot of elderly people. Right. Yeah, but I've seen people literally every age group with come into my office with C. diff. Right. So this is a major medical problem. It's affecting sure. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people uh, in a serious way. And here's a treatment which you can describe. And what are the uh, the rates of, of um, cure? About 92%. About 92% of the people who have this inexpensive, not dangerous, uh, very simple procedure walk out within hours, am I right? A day. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I would say usually pe- people oftentimes, okay, so C. diff, the deal is it secretes these toxins that directly damage your colon cells. Mm. And so you don't necessarily always feel better right away because the damage is still there. You might eradicate uh, right. the, the, the organism and replace your good uh, gut microbiome. And I've had people within hours say, oh my gosh, the pain is gone. Oh my gosh, the bloating is gone. Wow, I can tell I'm cured, I'm better. And I've had people come back for their one month appointment and say, you know, it took three weeks before mm. I really knew I was better right. because I had ups and downs. Right, right. Yeah, I read these reports when I was doing the research on the book of, of people who are bedridden for weeks or months. and Years. They have this treatment and the, like the next yeah, day they get sure. up and go down yeah. and have breakfast. Yeah, you know, I've seen those cases incredible. too. It's great. Yeah. So the, the procedure is you're taking the uh, fecal uh, material from a healthy donor. Yeah, we screen those people to make right. sure they don't have blood-borne or stool-borne uh, common infectious disease. Yeah, or no parasites. You're not introducing anything damaging exactly. to the patient, right? But then, so what you're doing is you're recolonizing their intestinal yeah. biome, right? Yeah. And now, what? Uh, I mean, the, the chapter I was just writing is about how the body is a community. Yes. And so I was using this as a, a way to sort of explain that. And the, the, what was the statistic I read? It was something like, you know, there are as many foreign bodies within your body as there are stars in the sky, you know, or in the galaxy. It's like this incredible, it's like nine to one ratio of bacteria to um, your own cells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, the, the bacterial cells in and on your body outnumber your own human cells, about 10 to one, nine to one, something like that. Right. This is because... And so you're like, what? why don't they overwhelm us? Well, they're a lot smaller. A, a typical bacterial cell, about 15,000 of them could fit inside one human cell. Right. So bacteria are small. Um, but numerically, they outnumber us. And in terms of genetic information, 
if you threw somebody into a blender, ground them up, and then extracted the genetic information. <laughs> don't do this at home. Don't, I don't recommend doing that. Uh, but if you did, uh, there's a hundred times the bacterial genetic information living in and on you than there is of right, you. Right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was the, the statistic that jumped out at me. So we are uh, literally walking communities. Yeah, that's it. You're an ecosystem. Yeah, your skin, your blood, your, your, your eyes, sinuses, Your vagina, your lungs, your... Uh, well, not your vagina. Not mine. Yeah. I've got a pristine vagina. <laughs> There's a penile microbiome, too, though. Oh, yeah. Sure. Hey, yeah, everything. It's a macrobiome. Come on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, all parts of you have microorganisms. Crawling with critters. Yeah. We're all crawling with critters. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, one of the things that, that I found so interesting, you know, we keep in this book I'm writing, it's called Civilized to Death, and it's about how, mm. how civilization is sold to us as this incredible, wonderful advance, but in so many ways, it's a step in the wrong direction, uh-huh. right? And one of the richest fields uh, for examples of this thing is medicine. We yes. keep shooting ourselves in the fucking foot, you know? Like creating sterile environments for babies, right? right? Or... Um, uh, surgical uh, delivery of babies, yeah. they don't get any of that vaginal mess yeah. that they need because yeah. that colonize. That's the first colonization of their of their skin and of their intestines. So, so, what's the number one reason for a hospital admission? Number one reason uh-huh. for a hospital admission? Uh, I don't know. What is it? Normal live birth. Ah, that is big money. I'm right. not too much of a conspiracy theorist. In fact, I tend to try and downplay others' concerns <laughs> uh-huh. about that. Um, but there's big money yeah, in birth. sure. And, um, yeah, so there's a condition called necrotizing enterocolitis. Oh, Can God. you break down the Latin of that? Well, something's dying. <laughs> yeah. uh, entero, internal, and colitis is the colon? Yeah, exactly. So this is when you're... Uh, colon and your small bowel, entero means small bowel, really. Oh, okay. Um, die. Right. The, the flesh, start, the, the, the tissue starts dying. Right. And this happens to prematurely born infants. It actually happens kind of a lot. It's, I forget the exact numbers, but like 3 4% of significantly prematurely born infants develop necrotizing enterocolitis, which of course can be fatal and is at least a surgical, urgent surgical situation. And if you just give all your preemies probiotics, it almost completely prevents it. Really? Almost completely prevents it. It drives me crazy. It's such low-hanging fruit. Yeah. If every neonatal intensive care unit would just give preemies probiotics because they're harmless and cheap, we would almost completely prevent necrotizing enterocolitis, which here in Portland happens every week at least. Uh, you know, and, and, but what is that? That's essentially just letting yourself be more messy. It's exposure to more living right. microbes. So why, why do preemies get this? They get it because the part of your ecosystem that's bacteria living in your gut plays a huge role in preventing pathogens from getting in and causing damage. Right. So you have to have the good stuff in there so the bad stuff doesn't come in and take over. Exactly. Right. So they're born prematurely, vaginally or, or... Either way. Either way. And because they're born prematurely, they don't have the healthy 
colonies established. Exactly. So, which is essentially the same thing with C. diff, right? That yeah. people, because of uh, antibiotics, Often. they they lose their healthy colonies, which opens it up for C. diff, exactly. which is antibiotic resistant. So it can just roll right in there and take over. Right. Yeah. The, you know, this is the hygiene hypothesis. I think yeah. it's one of the most important ways of thinking, and it can be applied to so many different things. When you when you reduce exposure to low risk, uh, I don't even want to call them pathogens. Right? Uh, no, they're not pathogens. Right. You can call them commensals, right. or you can call them mutualists. Mutualists. Yeah. That's a good word. Yeah. Right. Well, and the way I look at it is, you're reducing exposure to low risk because the thing is, a kid playing in the dirt, yeah, could get something, could get cut himself, and you know, get this infection or whatever. But that's a low risk. Right. So by eliminating the exposure to these low risks, what we do is we therefore create an environment for much higher risk problems to come in. Right. Right. So the kid who doesn't play in the dirt ends up with a, a shitty immune system, ends up with asthma and all sorts of autoimmune disorders because the immune system never had a chance to fight against that low-risk stuff. The kid who doesn't fall out of the tree ends up having a fucking car accident (laughs) because they never learned how to deal with risk. Right, yeah, so you you want sparring partners that teach you how to face an adversary. Exactly. And you want relatively benign sparring partners who aren't going to trash you, and there's plenty of those out in the world. Yeah. And then if you don't have that, then either... Uh, when a when a when a sparring partner who wants to take you down comes around, either they take you down because you don't know how to defend yourself, or you freak out so much that you hurt yourself. You hurt yourself, and that's autoimmune disease, allergic right. disease, inflammatory disease. Right. Yeah. And look at the way this is spreading through American society, like the educational system now, universities with trigger warnings, and you know you can take a gun on campus, but you can't say. Anything that could potentially offend anybody, right? right? It's the same mentality. It's like, oh, protect me from any small problem that might arise. What the hell do you think is going to happen down the road? You're going to be completely incapable of dealing with any problem, you know? Right. Yeah, it's a very strange system. Well, we, you and I were talking before we started. I, I normally live in Spain, and um, you can see this clearly uh in the cultures, you know, in the two cultures. Mm. Like in Barcelona, where I live, the, the example that always jumps out at me is there's um, a port right near our apartment. So often we'll go for a walk in the afternoon along this port, and there's a big uh, sort of uh, promenade, you know, everybody's there with their kids, and they're having ice cream, and people are walking, and there are musicians playing and everything. And at the edge of this sidewalk, it drops about 15 feet straight into the water. Mm-hmm. You know, where there are sailboats right. and stuff docked. And, but it's well, there's no fence. Yeah. <laughs> there's no sign. There's nothing. Yeah. There's just a drop-off. It's like, don't run off the thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, idiot, don't fall off the... Why do I need a sign telling me, like, don't fall off the cliff, you know? I mean, right. so, yeah. you know, and we, we go there every day. We've never seen anyone fall off that. But yeah. in America, there would be signs everywhere. There'd be, you know, fence and, you know, prohibited, stop. Grab right. your kid. I think you, you're right on there. There's something about the mentality that reflects what's going on in medicine. And I think it's good-hearted people putting up the fences and the signs. They're like, sure. I just don't want anybody to get hurt. It's the same thing in medicine. It's, the, it's good-hearted people being like, 
well, you know, use the antibacterial soaps and give antibiotics out like they're candy. The average 10-year-old has had 10 courses of antibiotics. And, um, uh, you know, and, and the idea is to keep people well and safe, but it doesn't have a broad enough picture about what happens if you're too safe. Right. Yeah, it's not thinking five steps ahead. It's thinking one step ahead. I would even argue that American uh, foreign policy suffers from the same problem. You know, I'm, I'm, interesting. You know that we're in. You know, oh terrorism. Well, we need to go right. bomb Yemen because <laughs> some guy in Yemen, you know, tried to like light his shoes on fire, and, and, and we need to change everything. And it ends up creating. It ends up fueling the problem that it's intended to eradicate. Yeah. You know, it, it's just that form of thinking is everywhere in, in American society. So I love taking an idea from one area and, and bringing it to another. Yeah. And so what would that look like in politics? Like, let's be dirtier. You know, in, 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 in medicine, preventive medicine, I tell my, my patients... Yeah, it's okay to be dirty, you know? Yeah. Be around different types of animals. Let the dog lick oh, the kid. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, in quantitative terms, uh, a, um, a woman who is pregnant and who spends time around five or more different species of anim- animals while she's pregnant has a significantly reduced chance of having a kid with allergies or asthma. That's amazing, yeah, really. So that's quantitative terms. Right. But it speaks to a broader philosophy intermingle with other species, yeah. you know, let the, the, the dirt come in. How would that apply to, like, politics or, yeah. uh, I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, the most immediate thing that comes to mind is you would have a president who, and political leaders in general who say, we're not going to eliminate risk. Yeah. Live with it. Right, right. right? We're getting rid of TSA. Yeah. Don't bring guns on the plane, okay? Yeah, don't. don't <laughs> no guns. But if you want to bring your fucking shampoo, you know, whatever. Right. But, I mean, like, we're not going to... If someone wants to come and bomb, set off a bomb, they're going to do it. And, you know, but let's focus on what's a real, what's really a problem. I don't remember the stats I just read the other day, you know, because uh, Obama's thing in Roseburg, he yeah. said, you know, I call on journalists to, yeah. like, do the numbers. Oh, yeah, right. How many people have died from terrorism versus... Right, one right. American shooting another. I, I watched a journal, journalistic uh, uh, video where they broke it down, and it's like 1991, 3,000 deaths from terrorism, and then uh, I'm sorry, 2001, 2001, uh, 3,000 deaths from terrorism, and every year after that, it's like 25, 40 right. deaths from terrorism, and 2001, 11,000 deaths from gun, gun homicides, and every year since then, same thing, 11, 12,000 yeah. deaths from gun yeah. homicides. Yeah, so let's let's look at what's really a problem. Right. I mean, and I think in medicine, it's the same. I, I, I was just writing last night the chapter on death and the way mm. the way we deal with death. And it's, uh, you know, again, we're in a state of denial where we're we're functioning as a culture on the assumption that we can eradicate death as opposed to accept that it's going to happen. Let's try to minimize the discomfort. Accept that there's going to be terrorism. Let's try to minimize the damage. Accept that, you know, life life involves suffering, but let's try to, you know, minimize it, not eliminate it. There's this unrealistic American, like, we can do anything, the war on this, the war on that. I think that's, you know, that 
that's what we need to learn in this country. Okay, I have two books to bring up. One is just on that. Have you read Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I I quoted from it last night, actually, yeah. Um, Okay, and then the other one is, there's a book by a guy named Moises Velasquez Manoff. <laughs> Come on. It's his name. That's not a real name. It, I know. He's cross-cultural <laughs> just all among himself. But his book is called Epidemic of Absence, uh-huh. A New Way of Understanding Autoimmune and Allergic Disease. Interesting. Uh, he's a New York Times writer. He's very good. Um, and he, uh, that book essentially talks about how what is absent from our life in terms of microorganisms largely uh, has brought about this epidemic of autoimmune allergic disease that right. we're seeing. Um, and he, I believe, I haven't read the book in a while, uh, I believe he talks about FMT a little bit, but the other thing he talks about a lot is helminthic therapy. What's that? So when someone says, I have intestinal parasites, they're either talking about oh, protozoans I know or they're talking yeah. about helminths. Right. Protozoans, pretty much, you know, bad guys are neutral. Helminths... Uh, there are helmets that are definite bad guys, causing river blindness, elephantiasis, other really bad things. Mm. Um, but one way that helmets survive inside a human is by downregulating certain parts of our immune system. Right. And historically, when we look at coproliths or archaeological stool samples, we all had helmets living in us. Right. So it seems like way back in the day, some of us kind of outsourced some of the ability to downregulate our immune system to helmets. And now that very, very few of us, in the United States at least, uh, have helminths living in our guts, some of us don't have as good of an ability to down-regulate immune function. In fact, right. so many of the people I see with allergic autoimmune or inflammatory disease, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, lupus, multiple sclerosis, Sjogren's syndrome, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, these are all uh, celiac disease. These are all conditions where our immune system is too active for our own good. And bringing worms back into our ecosystem, not normal flora, but normal fauna of the gut, uh, can go a long way, it seems, to restoring a more balanced uh, immune function. Yeah. Another way to look at that is that we evolved in the presence of these things that are, are... injecting chemicals or I'm not sure mm-hmm. what the mechanism yeah. is to to uh, um, sort of uh, slow down our immune response or, or uh, weaken the immune response. So we evolved to strengthen the immune response as a response to these things, right? So we evolved this sort of more muscular immune response. Then you take them away mm. and what do you have? You right. have an overly yeah. muscular right, immune right. response that it turns against sure. the organism itself and so you're right. So you, you, there's a balance there, and we remove one element of the balance, and then we're surprised that everything swings out of control. Very interesting way to think about it, yeah. Yeah, and, well, I have a friend who suffers from uh, MS. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if... There's a neat study uh, out of Argentina. So we had looked at epidemiology around the world and seen that when we go in and do deworming campaigns, just give anti-worm medicine to everybody. Now, overall, I just want to say, this is good for public health. Cuts down on river blindness and elephantiasis and all these other bad things. But what we notice is allergic and autoimmune disease goes up significantly in those areas. Mm. So this is observational epidemiological data. Right. And this neurologist, uh, Coriol is his last name, uh, in Argentina noticed this. 
Now, in I think it was the early 2000s, the first time the Argentine economy tanked, um, the the government of Buenos Aires was no longer able to keep their infrastructure running at the same levels uh, in terms of sewage and drinking water, and there was sewage getting into the drinking water. And so parasites, including helmets, went way up. Okay, So um, among this neurologist's multiple sclerosis patients, he noticed a finding on blood tests, an increase in a white blood cell called eosinophils. And he said, oh, you have an increase in eosinophils. You almost certainly have some helminths living in your gut because of the whole feces in the water thing. Um, so we could treat you or we could wait and see if, you know, maybe this could make a difference with your MS. There's something that would never happen in America, <laughs> right? A right. doctor saying, sure. oh, let's just hang and see let's what happens hang. here. Yeah. yeah. So he wrote this cool paper. I'll get you the reference or a copy if you're interested. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, where he basically keeps track of how many new lesions are occurring in the brain on MRI, what the quality of life is of people, of his MS patients, and he compares those who have helmets, the elevated blood levels indicating helmets, versus those that don't. And basically what happens is the people with the helmets stop getting new brain lesions, and their quality of life stops going down. Wow. Uh, it's, it's pretty awesome to look at figure one from this, uh, I think it's figure one from this study I'll get you. And, uh, you know, the people with regular MS who don't have the, the bugs, um, their quality of life continues to deteriorate and some getting very, very bad. Uh, and they continue to have new lesions coming on. And uh, some people, because they weren't getting carefully controlled doses of real benign helmets, they were just getting whatever came their way. Right. So some of them said, uh, you know, it's time to get rid of this. I think I have a bad guy or whatever. So they got rid of them. And then after you get rid of them, you can see on the charts he kept, uh, they start getting more brain lesions again and they start having deteriorating quality of life again. So anybody with multiple sclerosis, I would say the risk-benefit ratio of reintroducing worms is, uh, if you do it in a careful way, low risk, potential for great benefit. Right. Yeah, and if it goes wrong, they're pretty easy to eliminate. Oh, super easy. Now, the ones that I most often recommend my patients get is a worm called Nicator americanus. Uh-huh. That's the, what we call the New World Human Hookworm. Um, and it's so benign. 10% of the people in the world have Nicator americanus right. living in their guts. So we have a very good sense of what harms it can and cannot cause. Basically, what it causes is anemia, because they suck your blood. Right. Uh, um, uh, and, but at doses like I recommend my patients get, 35, 50, 80, maybe 100... Um, they never get anemia. That's a hundred worms. Organisms, yeah, Organisms. worms. Worms. Do they reproduce? They don't complete their life cycle in your gut. So they do shed eggs. If you are among the people who poop into a toilet, which I am personally, and uh, for the most part, my patients are also people who poop in toilets. That's it. Their life cycle's over. Mm. Um, even it's not even fecal oral. Like fecal oral conditions, you worry. Oh, if I didn't wipe enough and I touch a doorknob, somebody else could. This is fecal to soil, to skin. So uh, okay. it has to spend three days incubating in warm, moist soil, or it's right. not going anywhere. Right, right. So, so it's very safe. Very safe. So you're not going to contaminate yeah. other people I in your I have some living in my gut. I don't even have a chronic inflammatory or autoimmune disease. Right. I just was like, hey, I'm talk- recommending these for my patients. Right. What are they like? So I have them. So where do you get them? So there are a few places to get them that I think are reliable. Um, 
Now, I will note that the FDA has issued a, an import alert saying it is illegal to import these for medical purposes because it's an unapproved drug. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, the things yeah. they call drugs. Yeah, just including amazing. poop, which yeah, we can talk yeah, about yeah. in a minute. But so, um, basically, there's two or three places, and I'll, uh, uh, I'll talk about what they are. One is called Worm Therapy. They're at wormtherapy.com. And this might sound sketchy, but they're in Tijuana. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because worms are sketchy and Tijuana is sketchy. And, but there's an awesome, smart, very qualified medical doctor there named um, uh, uh, Dr. Yamas, L-L-A-M-A-S, Yamas, um, who I've corresponded with, who gives them to you. And, um, and then you bring them back, you know, you carry them in your body to the United States. And they're saying, really, under the FDA's Compassionate Care Program, you should be able to allow to be allowed to carry this medicine back into the United States. You carry it in your body. In your body. So he gives you the dose, gives and you then the you dose, just come home. And you come home. Oh well, that's not importing drugs. No, right? Because people in the United States have it naturally anyway. Right. In, in like Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Appalachia. Yeah. Jeez. I mean, every time I go to Mexico, I'm sure I bring <laughs> all sorts of interesting things back in my guts. Um, the other, but then you have to travel to Tijuana to get it. Right. Um, the other place is autoimmune therapies. Um, they're in the UK. There's a great radio lab program about the guy who founded them, Jasper Lawrence. Um, and basically, you know, they're like, their website's like, oh, we can send these most places in the world, not the United States. But then when you pay them, they're like, well, just mail them to you if you want. And mm. they mail them to you, even though it's illegal for you to receive. So you take a risk. You, you maybe are breaking a law by yeah. doing that. Yeah. Um, so those are the two reliable places to get them. And it's a few grand. A few grand. Yeah. Oh, that's expensive. It's expensive. Yeah, for worms. But they live a few years. Yeah. And, and, and it's a few grand for the initial dose and as many redoses as you need over the next few years. Mm. So. Yeah. Well, someone suffering from MS, I guess that's not that expensive. I do it in a heartbeat. Like I said, yeah. I, I, I did it even though I don't have MS just to because the risk is so low. And is it a few grand if you do this thing in Tijuana as well? Uh, I think it's two grand for them, but wow. then you have to travel to Tijuana. Huh. Seems like that should be something you could like cultivate in the ah, backyard. There is the third option. <laughs> Here we go. Wormswell.com uh-huh. for two hundred bucks. Uh-huh. And they well, they don't mail into the United States, but they will mail into Canada. So if you go up there and get a PO box or whatever, right. a hotel or right. something, um, they only accept payment in Bitcoin. Uh-huh. And I think they're in Eastern Europe somewhere. Right. So it's like the sketch factor is a little higher. Right. Because it's like Bitcoin, it's yeah. sort of anonymous, it's sort of weird. But I think it's legit from have, the one person I know who's received them. Have, has and anyone done an analysis of what they're sending out to be sure it's even... No. You know, the one person, a friend of a friend said, oh, you know, I ordered from Wormswell and I got them. Do you want me to bring them by the lab so you guys can look? Because we have a microscope and we identify worms. Right. Uh, you, so we can, you can make sure it's them. And I was like, sure. But they didn't get around to it, and they inoculated it. And so mm. I, don't, I don't have direct. But they got the characteristic itch. Um, I, I don't want to go too deep into the science because this isn't what we're supposed to talk about today. But the only real risk there is if you don't have a very careful microbiologist, and I am confident in the ability of the microbiologists behind autoimmune therapies and worm therapy, and I don't know who's involved with worms well, but if you don't have a very competent microbiologist, you could possibly have another organism in there, which right. looks very much like Nicator americanus, called Strongyloides stercalis. 
And Strangi is a problem because if you ever become significantly immunocompromised, those ones can reproduce inside your body. Mm. And they could grow to epic proportions and give you full body paralysis. That's not good. Right. So a lot of my patients end up having to take prednisone at some point, which is very immune suppressive. Right. You go on a big dose of prednisone, you have Strangi in your body, that's, that's a big deal. Right. Right. Hmm. So those are the sources. I read a thing a few years ago about a guy, I don't remember what he was suffering from. I, I can't even remember, it was a really interesting essay, I can't remember where I read it, but he was suffering from something pretty serious, and he read about this worm stuff, and you're smiling like you might know this article, yeah. and he went to West Africa yeah, yeah, and yeah. walked around barefoot. So you listened to the radio lab. Is that what Jasper it was? Oh, okay. From, uh, for, and who now, and he was in the United States, and basically the FDA was like, you can't do this here, and he went to the UK and set up shop there. Oh, okay, that yeah. was what it was? Yeah. I'll have to go back he and had, He had pretty bad allergic asthma, and so that's when he reports very good benefit for his allergic asthma. And he went and like walked around in open Cameroon, sewers. I think. And, yeah, and he's yeah. been bare feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later, and then, and then I guess he took he he, he kind of got freaked out and took deworming meds, and then went to Mexico with Garen Aglietti, who's the American founder of WormTherapy.com, and they they got worms together in in Mexico. Right, right. You know, I. I, every time I come to the U.S., I put on weight quickly. Yeah. And part of it is serving size. Part mm-hmm. of it is that I don't walk as much as I do when yeah. I'm in Europe just because of the lifestyle. But I wouldn't be surprised if part of it is the amount of antibiotics that are in the food supply here. Yeah. That could be. I, you know, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, sure. There's all this growth hormones, all this shit that they don't do in Europe. Yeah, I mean, we know. give... Antibiotics to cattle routinely because we know it makes them fatter. But no one knows why. Right. That's a weird thing. I, it almost certainly has to do with their gut microbiomes. Right. So we're fucking up the animal's <laughs> uh, gut microbiome. Yeah. I mean, what I read was that years ago some animals were sick because of the horrible conditions they were kept in. They were giving them antibiotics mixed into the food, and suddenly they noticed like that the chickens grew much faster. Right. So then they're like, wow, antibiotics make them grow. The yeah, but nobody knows why. Yeah. No one knows the mechanism. Right. But anyway, so just yesterday, I think California passed a law that uh, as of 2018, I think, they have to eliminate uh, indiscriminate use of antibiotics. Yeah, just yesterday. Um, uh, You know, you can still use it for sick animals, but healthy animals, you can't just like throw it in there for no reason because now, of course, they're not working. You know, it's a big problem. Um, It's like something like 80% of antibiotics in this country go to livestock. Exactly. And where does that end up? Come on. You know, there's, it it, belies belief to think that that doesn't end up in our guts. But um, like years ago, I was in, uh, my wife and I were in Southeast Asia traveling around for a couple of months. And, you know, we had come from the U.S. So I, I had, you know, 15, 20 pounds overweight and, you know, the usual and we're in Southeast Asia, and yeah, we're traveling, we're backpacking, your diet's different, but yeah. we're, you know, we're eating as much as we want. And lo- and I dropped that weight like, it was weird, because the first couple of months, everything was fine, yeah. and then we got to India, to Goa, and the weight just like disappeared in two weeks, yeah. just gone. And she noticed, she's a doctor, she yeah. was like, what? wow, your body's completely different from two weeks ago. 
And I, I've always felt, because I've spent a lot of time traveling in the third world and come back and go out and come back, yeah. I've always felt like something happens inside me, you know, because you get diarrhea, typical traveler diarrhea. And I've never, I found when I was traveling, there were always two types of people, the type that freaked out about it mm-hmm. and took a bunch of drugs mm-hmm. and, you know, worried about touching things and has the salad been rinsed in bottled water and all that. And the people who are just like, yeah, whatever, getting sick is part of traveling. I, I definitely, uh, you You're know, in the, latter, in the latter group, yeah. But I think there's a, a great benefit in being in dirty countries where the food's dirty. If you don't die yeah. from it, you That's know? it. There's risk and benefit. Yeah. You know, as opposed, it's not vanilla, you know. You're taking yeah. some risk and there's potential for benefit there. Right, right. And I, personally, I've, you know, one of the driving philosophies of my life probably is that the the potential for benefit is far outweighs the risk. And, you know, here in this, in this culture where we try to eliminate the risk, we end up, you know, with the uh, unintended consequences right. of that. So how, where are you from? What's your, what's your story? How does a guy become a, a fecal transplant expert? <laughs> so uh, I grew up outside of Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And, um, Sorry to hear that. No. <laughs> my, my father's from Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah. Ridley Park. Yeah, I'm from Willow Grove, just uh, north Willow, of Philadelphia. That's a beautiful name. Yeah, there weren't, weren't a lot of willows. Is that there. the main line? Are you a, a main line of that. person? No, oh, yeah, okay. I'm closer to Philly. All right. Um, uh, and there's a lot of medical doctors on my mom's side of the family. She's a nurse. Uh, Her dad was a doctor. His wife was a nurse, and his dad was a doctor. His wife was right. a nurse. It's like one of those things. Um, and my parents were always like, "You could be whatever you want to be." And my mom would be like, well, but being a doctor is a great thing to be. But I, I kind of was like, well, what do doctors do? And I looked around and it's like surgeries and pharmaceuticals. From a, a young age, I was like, I, I know that's not what I want to do. I, I want to avoid those things as a person. Mm. Uh, and so I don't want to make that my trade. Right. So I'll do something else. Which, you know, in my younger life involved... Hitchhiking around the United States and Mexico and working at restaurants and I got a degree in linguistics and um, just kind of nothing to do with medicine. Um, And then uh, when my partner was pregnant with our our first child, uh, I was like, oh, I really have to do the career thing now. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's serious. Yeah. Yeah. So so I thought I'm going to be a nutritionist, Uh I think, because I believe in food as medicine. Um, but I, as I looked around, the, the programs to be a registered dietitian didn't really resonate with me either. Uh, but then Bastyr University near Seattle has a, a master's in whole foods nutrition. And I went there to check it out and I discovered the naturopathic medicine program. And, and then I ended up checking out the one in Portland and, and coming there. Right. Um, it's a big program here, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it graduates about 100 naturopathic doctors a year. Which is pretty large for the U.S. Yeah, it's yeah. The, I think we're the second or third biggest program. Yeah. There's only seven accredited schools in North America. Right. Um, so I was just learning naturopathic medicine, and I studied with a guy named Steven Sandberg-Lewis, who's been practicing 35 or 40 years now, um, and I just thought he was super sharp. So I did as many rotations with him as I could, seeing patients. And he saw a lot of people with inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. For some reason, that was like a quarter of his practice. Um, so these were very sick people often who had come to him after seeing many gastroenterologists or mm-hmm. other naturopathic doctors. Um, and we used 
diet and nutrient therapies and herbs and all kinds of other things. And a lot of those people we were able to help, and certainly some of them continued to suffer just as much. And I'm a big science geek, so I would just spend hours digging around in the literature on PubMed or other sources, trying to figure out what else we could try to help these people suffering. And I found two things that I thought were super cool. One were these papers from 2003 and 2004 by an Australian gastroenterologist named Thomas Barodi, uh, describing patients with ulcerative colitis not responding to anything. And they would do fecal transplant with them. Uh, and they were able to completely reverse their symptoms and get off all their medicines. And I was like, wow, that's big time cool. Nothing does that. I mean, that is, very, that is rare. And the other thing was helminthic therapy, some preliminary trials using helminthic therapy. Mm. Um, so I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue these things, starting with fecal transplant. Um, I had the opportunity to try fecal transplant with one ulcerative colitis patient when I was a student. And then when I got my own license, I realized there was nobody in North America at that time doing donor-bank-driven fecal transplant for people with inflammatory bowel disease. So I bought the website fecalmicrobiotatransplantation.com, and I started to make that my niche. So I was able to see people from all over the world uh, with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease using fecal transplant with them. And at first I thought, it's going to be so simple. I'll just cure everybody. Mm. Uh, first of all, I, and you know, five years later, it's not simple. It's often very complicated. Uh, and second, I don't actually even use the term cure uh, anymore uh, like I, I did when I was a student, or I thought about it at least when I was a student. I, I think people with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease are constitutionally predisposed to make big-time gut inflammation. Like their ancestors were the ones who were like, Hey, we got these worms. Well, we're going to beef it up and be stronger. And, and they pass down that characteristic somehow right. to my patients. Um, so I think they're always going to be predisposed to do that. And so they always have to keep track of how their gut is doing for their whole lives. But I have been able to take very, very sick people with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, as sick as you can get. Like death is on the table. Certainly having your colon removed was, could be imminent for these people um, and get them to be completely well with no drugs. That's best case scenario. Mm. It's often complicated, but that's the end of the bell curve where we're like, right. wow, that's the best outcome we could hope right. for. Right, right. And that, as a, as a physician, that must be an amazing feeling. Oh, it's the best. It's what I live for, you yeah. know? When, uh, and that's what gets my juices flowing too for the people who nothing else works for what can right. we do for those people? Right. And having some ideas and possibilities to throw into the mix. And um, imagine, imagine that, you know, because as you say, by the time people come to you, generally they will have already tried the more conventional stuff. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, um, because people are complicated, I've ended up amassing a whole lot of other tools in my toolkit too for people with inflammatory bowel disease, yes, diet things, yes, herbs, yes, nutrient therapies, yes, better use of pharmaceutical therapies. So I, I have a lot of different tools that I use. Mm. But for, um, And so when people come to me, they haven't necessarily tried all those tools. And sometimes people come and they say, I want to do the fecal transplant thing. And mm. I say, look, this is a lifetime thing. Let's explore all the tools 
for you. Let's flush out your toolkit. And fecal transplant for some people is gonna be the most powerful tool in their kit. Sometimes the only one they'll need even, mm -hmm. really. But for most people, having a well-rounded toolkit is, is a good idea. So that's what I urge people to do is to try a lot of things, including fecal transplant. And where do you get your fecal material? So um, initially, when I started this and, and put together my donor bank, I um, would screen healthy donors and bank their stool and, and provide that for people. And I mostly was using the children of other naturopathic doctors in the mm -hmm. community. These are kids who like, have never had a course of antibiotics in their life. They eat healthy whole foods diets. They're active. Mm -hmm. They're good body weight, uh, body mass index. Um, so just generally healthy people who have good gut microbiome. Right. Uh, and of course, we do all those screening. Um, and I was using that for my patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Two, going on two and a half years ago, the FDA set a guideline where they said, human poop is a drug if you're using it to treat people. <laughs> you're busted. <laughs> you're busted. You're, it wasn't just me. Not only are you busted, you're smuggling it up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you were going to get away with that? That's good. <laughs> uh, right, so everybody who was doing this in the United States, mostly me and a bunch of gastroenterologists, uh -huh. we all stopped. Um, yeah, and there was an uproar against that. Yeah, right. right. There yeah. was so much, because it... The uproar was about C. diff because it so clearly works for C. diff and C. diff infects so many people and kills so many people every year that the FDA a few months later finally said, okay, okay, it's not quote unquote FDA approved, but we're going to provide discretionary enforcement. Right. If you use it for C. diff that's not responding to standard therapies, we won't enforce our own rule. Go ahead and do it. So now for my donor bank, uh, I, I only use my donor bank to administer fecal transplant to people who have C. diff infections not responding to standard therapies. Right. Um, however, when people come to me with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, I tell them, look, uh, in many cases I say, I think this could be indicated for you. I think this could be safe and effective for you. Um, and I encourage you to do it at home. I'll give you detailed instructions about how to collect, prepare, and self-administer the stool. It's not rocket science. Mm -hmm. um, and I will uh, screen your donors for you for HIV, syphilis, viral oh, hepatitis, parasites, uh, right. other harmful bacteria, right. including C. diff. And you're legally, you're okay? You're, you're you know, it's funny. Uh, uh, last summer, there was a FMT conference in Chicago. 150 or so physicians and nurse practitioners from around the country and the world uh, coming to learn from the big experts. I was there as a student, not as a presenter, learning from giants on whose shoulders I stand. Uh, in this field. And uh, there was an interesting ethics panel by one of the organizers where she talked about the ethics of giving this. And she believed it was not, the presenter believed it was not Julie Kahn, I think was her name, was, was under the, her belief was that the FDA does not permit us to screen donors and facilitate people doing home FMT. Uh, I approached her afterwards and I said, all, from my, I, I have a different opinion uh, because when you look at the standard principles of medical eth uh, ethics, including non-malfeasance, first doing no harm, autonomy, letting patients make their own choice, um, 
essentially trying to make sure patients can do what they want and have the best outcome without doing them harm. I think facilitating home FMT fits into those ethics. And the FDA guidelines are not clear. And to me, they allow it. Um, so I was in the minority, I think, at that convention. Most gastroenterologists will not facilitate the process of home FMT, but I do at this point, and I will continue to do so until somebody tells me not to. I, I believe it's ethical, and I believe it's legal. Um, also, I want to just say I'm on the board of directors of a group called the Fecal Transplant Foundation, or the advisory board, um, and I am lucky, I count myself lucky, to have some of the giants on whose shoulders I stand on that advisory board with me. Um, and I'm the minority opinion there too. Mm. These are super, super smart, experienced people who also work a lot with patients with inflammatory bowel disease and see how bad their suffering is. Um, and these people generally think we, it's too soon. We shouldn't be doing home FMT. We should allow there to be more clinical trials, see what the long-term harm and benefit is. Um, and I respect them. I think their thinking comes out of that model we were discussing earlier, which is mitigate risk at all costs, right. even at the uh, risk of missing out on it's benefit. I'm doing down. Yeah, and yeah. I just have a different attitude, which I hope they respect. I'm not totally sure, which is if my patients want that benefit and they're willing to incur the risk, the, the, the risk of the unknowns in particular, then I'm all, all about supporting them. Right. Um, so, so I just want to let your listeners know that there's other perspectives out there from super sure. smart people. You're you're cool having this in the podcast? Yeah, okay. absolutely. I don't want to get yeah, you in no, any trouble. No, I'm trying to be okay. very, very okay. tra transparency is important to me. Right. So I'm transparent and public about what I do. Right. At any point the FDA tells me to stop, I'll have a big frowny face on, but I'll stop. Right. But sure. uh, until then, I, I think I'm doing right. things legally. Well, I, I think it's fantastic that you're enabling, I want to enable the wrong <laughs> word. Facilitating. Facilitating. What, what you're doing is you're, you know, honestly, when I read about this, if I knew someone who was suffering from one of these disorders, I would be, you know, dropping turds in the blender tomorrow. <laughs> um, but, but there's risk to that because I don't know what I'm doing. And right. so I think... Someone like you who knows what's going on, um, helping people uh, do things correctly so that they don't hurt themselves sure. or, or someone else, that's the essence of, of responsible medical practice. Are there, is, there, um, is there a book that tells people how to do this? Are people who might be listening in other countries who don't have access to someone like you? Is there Great question. So there is a website called mm -hmm. The Power of Poop. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunate, yeah. unfortunate, um, the power of poop. Yeah, it started huh? out as a Facebook group, and the woman who started it, who has been an impassioned volunteer, I will say I'm not sure how long the website will be up because she has just been doing a lot of volunteer work for years now, and, and uh, I don't know if she'll be keeping it up. But it has been a great resource to people um, reading anecdotes from other people around the world doing this. There are videos up there, people saying, look, I do this for my kid with ulcerative colitis. Let me show you. Here's the poop. Here's the blender. Here's what I do. Right. Walking through it. There's links to studies. Right. Um, so there's a lot of things out there for people interested in doing it at home. There's a book by a woman named Sky Curtis called like the Fecal Transplant Handbook or something like that. I will say that um, that book is mostly good. She's not a clinician. She's right. a mom of a kid with inflammatory bowel disease who right. did this with a kid and saw great 
great benefit. And I, I actually have learned from reading her book, but I also think she makes uh, a, a few errors in her thinking just because she's not a clinician, she's just a caring mom. Sure. Yeah. Let, now, we're talking about doing um, a transplant of healthy microbiome uh, from, one, from a donor into someone who's got a, a, a deficit. Yeah. What about someone who, for example, um, someone who's going into surgery? Yes. So you take your own sample, freeze it. When you come out of surgery, you give it back to yourself. You'd like... It's like rebooting your computer. So right? just a few days ago, Moises Velasquez Manoff wrote an article in New York Times about this idea, banking our own stool. And there is a pilot program he mentions where, I forget where, um, and in that program, none of the people ended up needing their own stool. But, mm. but you know what they demonstrated was, yes, we can do it. It takes about an hour. It's not a high cost. It's not high risk. We can bank stool like this if people need it. Um, so yeah, that, that's a that real... That should be standard practice, right? Oh, it would be I mean, Because there's zero risk there. You're not, you're not introducing right. anything that isn't already there. Yeah. You don't you're... have to screen the right. stool. You're just, you know, it's your own stool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so people who are taking, uh, what's the phrase, systemic antibiotics yeah. after surgery, which is, you know, it's, it's standard practice, yeah. right? Um, yeah, it's amazing. You know, we talk about how advanced science is and medical science and the billions or trillions of dollars that are spent on studies and procedures and this and that. But as you say, there are these incredibly obvious low-hanging fruit, I yeah. think was the phrase you used, that are just like, how is it possible that this is not standard practice? Right. It's unbelievable. This, this thing I was doing writing last night about death is like, you know, Medicare will pay for a $100,000 hip replacement for a 90-year-old <laughs> blind woman who's, you know, at most has six months to live anyway, but they won't pay for someone to come to her house and, you know, uh, feed her and take care of her so she doesn't have to go to the nursing home. Right. Which costs, you know, a tenth. of. uh, It's just very, um, very sad how the the priorities are determined by institutions, the interests of the institutions and not the interests of the patients. You know, something like what you're talking about, self administered fecal transplant. It's cheap, easy, but it's not making anyone a lot of money. Right, yeah. Uh, we, we have done that a couple times here at my lab, actually. Somebody knowing they're going into a, a course of antibiotics, and we've banked and frozen their stool for them. And, and they've ended up not needing it also. Right. But. So the, the organisms don't die when they're frozen? No, they're good at least six months. Really? At least six months. Wow. Yeah, maybe longer. But we, 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 have, we, we have pretty good confidence about at least six months. And, but you do need to freeze them because otherwise it will yes. happen if they're not frozen. Well, half, they go through half their the weight of a stool is, is, is organisms. Is that right? Uh, yeah, counting, depending on how much water is in it, two-thirds of the dry weight is really? organisms, but huh. about half with the, the regular stool weight. Wow. Yep. Um, right, so they just... Go through their metabolic process. They live. They die. They consume what nutrients are there, and they go through their life cycle, and they're done. And then they die. Yeah. So if you freeze it, then they're sort of suspended they're, animation. It's exactly. Wow. That shit is interesting. <laughs> it really is. So you mentioned uh, probiotics earlier, and I've read yeah. conflicting information about probiotics. Mm-hmm. So some people say, oh, it's essential, it's fantastic, they're wonderful. Other people say, no, the stuff that's in yogurt or so-called probiotic formulas is not really the stuff that you need in your guts. I think those are both true. They're both true. Yeah. Interesting. So it's not 
like Lactobacillus acidophilus right. is the most studied probiotic organism. You find it in yogurt. Um, it, uh, it's not native to most people's guts. There are maybe small populations, maybe 0.01% or something in some mm. people's gut, particularly in the small bowel. Not very much at all in the large bowel. And does that get through the stomach acid alive? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. It doesn't really matter if it's alive or not. Um, because if you look at studies where they compare live probiotics, like Lactobacillus and Bifidobacteria species, to intentionally heat-killed one, most of the time you get the same benefit or almost the same benefit from the dead ones. Really? Yeah. Which isn't the case with fecal transplant. You intentionally kill, heat kill fecal transplant uh, and, and give it, you don't get the benefit. Right. So that one is about reestablishing a population. Uh, I used to describe probiotics as if you picture your gut ecosystem as like a city, probiotics are like the friendly stranger who comes through town and pets the dog and picks up the trash and walks the old people across the street and then leaves again. Mm. I have since changed my tune because of the way that intentionally heat-killed probiotics work, I think that probiotics are like a completely benign, harmless stranger coming through town and skulking around in a hoodie, like not doing anything wrong. Or, or, or walking around with like a low-brimmed hat and a trench coat, not doing anything wrong. So they're not, they're not doing anything good, they're not doing anything bad, but everybody else is like, what are they doing? Maybe I should walk the old person across the street and pick up some trash and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and maybe we should, maybe we should need to have some more police around or maybe we should see if our neighbor's okay. So it stimulates the residents in some way. Stimulates the residents and stimulates the native immune system right. to pay more attention and be more careful. Even if it's dead. Even if it's dead. That's interesting. Yeah, now, there, is, there are some benefits to live probiotic bacteria, especially certain strains it looks like, but a lot of the benefit is just about stimulating the immune system and the, the resident mm, bacteria. Okay. So what about um, like kombucha? Yeah. Is that is the same thing as yogurt or is there more interesting stuff in kombucha? You know, I don't know. I don't have a, 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 a well-formed scientific opinion on kombucha. I will say that um, it, it, you know, it's made with a SCOBY, which stands for a symbiotic combination of bacteria and yeast. Mm. And there appear to be times when less harmless yeasts or bacteria can get into the SCOBY and maybe there's some risk, including maybe even some small but real cancer risk to consuming kombucha made with certain SCOBYs. And it seems like probably there's some benefit to, I, I don't know, I, I, I feel like a little bit is harmless, maybe beneficial, and more is maybe beneficial sometimes, but maybe there's some risk too mm. with kombucha in particular. Right. Because of the SCOBY factor. SCOBY. SCOBY. <laughs> I didn't know that's what SCOBY stood for. Yeah. I had no idea. I thought there was just some silly word. SCOBY no we don't. Exactly. Death by SCOBY. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now I'm distracted. What the hell was my other question? Uh, you know, one thing that's... Uh, I, I was reading recently that uh, the reason that spices... Now, this is contentious. Somebody disagreed with me when I, I wrote something about this. But um, I'd read that the reason spices were so valuable in the medieval times, uh, the age of exploration and all that was, uh, I guess, post-medieval, was um, because people were eating rotten uh, meat, in Europe, and that the spices were a way to cover the stench of the rotten meat that they were eating, because there's no refrigeration, obviously. 
Um, I wonder if there is a benefit to eating food that is, well, what, what would the word be? Fermenting? Well, yeah, is so it, what's the difference between fermenting and rotting? Yeah, that, that's... What is the difference? That's essentially my question. Yeah. It, it's something that's, that's being yeah. eaten by yeah. something right. else at the time you eat it. Right. So on one level, it's a cultural difference. Mm. And what we would call a fine camembert, yeah. someone from Southeast Asia would be like, that is some rotten dairy yeah. right there. And there are, you know, and what I might say, what is that slimy, rotten soybean residue that makes me want to puke? Someone else might say, oh, no, that's, that's natto. That's is, this is fine, uh, exquisite right. food. Or well, tempeh, you, right? Is yeah, tempeh right. Is tempeh fermented? Yeah, soil? right, right. I don't know if you ever had natto. Uh-uh. I almost vomited the first time I put it in my mouth. It's a fermented soy product that you pick it up with the chopsticks and it leaves a trail of mucus from the plate all the way to your mouth. And the taste was very hard you for my palate love, to handle. You gotta love mucus. <laughs> I, I have had like seriously stinky French cheese. Right. You know, which I love. And again, America, you can't import it because it's alive. Right. They call right. it a drug. Right. So, so that's on one level, the difference between rotten and fermented is cultural. Yeah. And another, it's the idea that Okay, rotten can hurt you. And so when things, really what fermented means is bacteria are working on it. Yeah. And so if the wrong kinds of bacteria work on it and produce some toxins, then it could be harmful for you. And then we could say it's rotten. And sometimes there's a fine line yeah. there. Is what about benign? beer? Does beer have any beneficial effect? Please tell me yes. No. <laughs> I'll pay Maybe. you. I'll pay you. Maybe. <laughs> you know, beer is fermented with yeast. Yeah. We kind of generally don't want a lot of bacterial activity in there. Right. Um, but it's fermented with yeast. Um, can we get benefit from that yeast? Well, maybe there's some protein, maybe some B12. If you're having an unfiltered beer with some yeast still in there. Um, I, I do have a patient who I believe got something called auto brewery syndrome. What? From consuming a lot of homebrew during a period when he was a bit immunocompromised. So wow. auto brewery syndrome is where you have so much yeast growing in your gut that if you eat sugar or simple carbohydrates, the yeast ferment it and turn it into alcohol and it can actually raise your blood sugar, uh, blood alcohol levels and you get intoxicated from eating sugar and carbs. Wow. Yeah. That could be very interesting for someone who gets pulled over for drunk driving. Right, right. And they haven't had a drink. Right. It was just a pizza officer, I swear. Wow, that's incredible. It's not common. It is uncommon. Yeah. But I do have a patient who I believe was uh, experiencing this and has experienced a lot of improvement in quality of life by treating him for intestinal fungal overgrowth. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, I have a, a sort of a distant relationship with my guts, I yeah. think. Um, you know, because a lot of people, you know, I've grown up hearing people say, oh, no, if I eat that, I feel, I get bloated, I feel good. I, I feel like I can eat anything and I, you know, yeah, maybe I fart a little more than normal, but whatever, you know. And luckily I live with a, a woman, a doctor, yeah. who's very like, fart, fart, let yeah, it out, yeah. let it <laughs> out. She's like completely, you know, no body shame whatsoever. Right. And, um, uh, but no, I don't know if that's just that I'm not as conscious of what's going on in my guts or if other people... I've always wondered this. Is is it that they can't ignore what's going on because it's much more present to them uh, because the signals are louder, or is it just a question of focus? A lot of the patients who come into my office 
you, can, you cannot miss what is happening to them. Right. Cannot miss it. So that's like, like I bloating eat food or X, Y, Z, and I look and feel, I look like I am five months pregnant. Really? And I've had people come in and I'm like, I visibly see how distended your abdomen is. And they say, it's very uncomfortable to experience it. I feel crampy and painful. And I know that if I eat certain foods, this will happen to me. And that's because the content of that food mixing with what's living in their gut creates so much gas that their abdomen just bloats out? Yeah. Or is it A lot of times that's it. Sometimes it's that. Huh. And sometimes it's even other things. But yep, sometimes it's about... Simply about excessive gas production leading to distension and bloating and discomfort. Sometimes it's abdominal edema and inflammation, and, and sometimes it's other stuff. Uh, and other times I have people in my patients with inflammatory bowel disease, which is a lot of my patients. I eat foods X, Y, Z, and I have blood in my stool within 24 hours. Mm. <laughs> There's no missing that. Yeah. 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 Have you ever seen anyone with um, hysterical pregnancy? I don't know what you mean. Uh, Someone who exhibits the physical Mm. symptoms of being pregnant, but they're not. So we met a, my wife and I met a woman in India. I'd read about it years ago. Like I studied psychology, right? And that's hysterical blindness affects people. You know, people, belief systems can affect the body in so many interesting ways, including death, right? If uh, someone who believes in voodoo believes they've been cursed, then they will die, in fact. It's bizarre. Um, But yeah, no, when when you mentioned that someone came into your office uh, looking like they were five months pregnant, it reminded me of this woman we met who, um, it was a very strange situation. She like really looked pregnant yeah. and she wasn't overweight she was thin but she yeah. had like a bowling ball yeah. in her abdomen and she wasn't pregnant and yeah. uh it was and, and she the weird thing about her was she knew she wasn't pregnant yeah she but her boyfriend was leaving her and it freaked her out so much that she created huh. this pregnancy in her body you know it, yeah i i haven't run into that in that case it's funny humans you know we we make mistakes all the time all the time and so she was like, well, my boyfriend's leaving me. I'm having this thing. She connected them. They were correlated. Is that really the cause? Could she have had a bad guy parasite or something? There's a gajillion right. reasons to have significant right. abdominal distension. Did right. she have some other reason on board? Or was it the very real power of the mind causing yeah. that to happen? Well, that's what I was going to say because, you know, the, the stress manifests in so many different ways. Have you read John Sarno? Do you know? He, yes. The back, you know? Yeah. Um, Healing back pain. Yeah, and so his his theory is that uh, most back pain that people suffer from is actually a manifestation of psychological issues, yeah. right? And probably, I don't know which is number one and which is number two, but I would say abdominal issues are you know definitely a very likely uh, place to manifest psychological pain. Oh yeah, it goes both ways. What happens in your brain? can totally, totally affect what happens in your gut. And what happens in your gut can really strongly affect what happens in your brain. Right. So you get a lot of you know, psychogenic abdominal conditions, but that doesn't mean they're not real. Right. Right? Because the stress changes the, the chemistry of the, of the gut, right? Absolutely. So how do you deal with that? Do you have psychological people that you work with as well, therapists, or do you just try to treat the, the gut issue and 
let the other thing work itself out. Yeah, there's a bunch of counseling places. I don't do that type of counseling myself, but there are um, counseling places here in Portland. The Meta Institute is one. Rivers Way is another. Those are both student clinics that mm. um, you know a really affordable way to try and experiment with uh, and see if you can find a, a counselor that you like. Yeah, um, and other places that I send people to work on stress management. There is uh, sometimes I just recommend breathing techniques or simply sitting, you know, sitting meditation is just an opportunity to, uh, that's a whole nother topic, but you know, just sitting is stressful in some ways. And if you can just let that stress come and let go of it or let your thoughts come and go, that's an opportunity to gain some experience to later in your day when you have stress come your way, just let it come and go. Um, so I, I recommend sitting, I recommend breathing techniques, I recommend counseling, um, but mostly, what I tell them is, everybody has stress, and stress exacerbates everything. And some people get stressed out and they wheeze. Some people get stressed out and their sinuses get clogged. And some people get stressed out and their backs hurt. And you get stressed out and your gut goes wonky. So my job in your life is to help support your gut ecosystem and biochemistry and immune activity in such ways that when you get stressed out, your gut's a little more stable and solid for you. Mm. And your job is to work on reducing the stress. Yeah, right. And here's, you could try seeing a counselor and you could try some other stuff. And You ever try floating? Yeah, float on is a place here. Float on, yeah, I I go there too. Yeah, Yeah, they're great down there. Yeah. I'd never tried that um, uh, until I got to Portland. I'd read about it for years, Uh, John Lilly. John Lilly, yeah. 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 Um, Do you know Andrew Weil's work? Little bit, yeah. Yeah, he's he's a friend of ours, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've read one of his books, and I, you know, it's definitely his uh, articles and his um, proteges are out there in the world. Yeah, yeah. He's. I, I really appreciate what he's done with uh, Western medicine, becoming so prominent, and yet never turning his back on his early work with uh, consciousness and uh, uh, psychogenic drugs and or plants, you know, sacred plants with uh, hallucinogens and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he's he's a really interesting. Yeah, guy. I really admire him. He, the way he approaches uh, traditional wisdom around medicine and evidence around medicine, yeah. and really honoring and cherishing both of those right. is very similar to my own way that right. I really cherish evidence and traditional. Uh, approaches, so I, I like yeah. what he has to say. Yeah, it really depends on what the case is. As he says, if I'm in a car accident, take me to the emergency room. Yeah. If I've got a chronic skin condition, let's talk, you know, about naturopathic oh, yeah. Look, or the, You know, uh, inflammatory bowel disease, ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, used to have like a 60 or 70% mortality rate. 60 or 70% of people would end up dying from their disease. Now it's like 3%. Hmm. And what do we have to thank for that? Prednisone, you know, a hardcore immunosuppressant steroid is the big gun that has saved so many lives. I'm so thankful for the existence of steroids and prednisone. I prescribe them to my patients sometimes, and I'm like, look, you're you're too sick. We got to put out this fire a little bit before we deal with, uh, you know, replanting the forest. We got to deal with the forest fire. Right, that's a good way to put it. Anything we're missing? I saw you took a couple notes there. Um. You know, I just I just want to mention that uh, this is a a tradition that goes all the way back to the fourth century. 
fecal transplant. Mm. A Chinese physician named Ge Han. Yellow soup. Yellow dragon soup. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, I don't like Chinese food as it is, but if I ever see yellow dragon soup on, on the, the menu. menu yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't order that one unless you have ulcerative colitis. Yeah. Uh, right, and then uh, again in the 16th century, another author named Li Shurgen. Uh, but in Europe, there's a 16th century author, uh, Christian Franz Paulini, who wrote a book called, it's like the Heilsam Drek Apotheki, or the Healing Filth Pharmacy. Uh, <laughs> That's a great name for yeah. a shop. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> or a, or a, a, a metal band. Or, yeah, yeah. I mean, the Healing Filth. Coming to a uh, center near you, yeah. Healing Filth Pharmacy. <laughs> um, uh, right, and then... And then and then there's a, there's an unpublished but a very interesting naturopathic tradition that I've received orally from from uh, people who've been practicing a long time about how their mentors would use it. Um, so it's a really interesting thing that has gone back, uh, goes back a long time in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just super excited that we're we're it's now opening Catching up, catching up to the past. Yeah, we're discovering a lot about it and how this yeah. can help people. So. You know, I, that reminds me of something I did want to ask you. Is fecal transplant, my understanding is that it's more commonly practiced in Europe than in the U.S. Do you know about that? I don't know if that's true. I, I don't have any statistics. I, I read, I try and read all the literature about it that comes out. And there's a fair amount being published um, in the United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely things coming out of um, uh, European centers, too. There's a guy named Max Newdorp who's an endocrinologist who published the first randomized controlled trial of fecal transplant for C. diff and has done really cool work with giving it to men with metabolic syndrome, which is like pre-diabetes, and watching mm. their fasting triglycerides and other markers drop. Well, that's something we haven't talked about, the, the effect on all these other diseases. Right, yeah. right. That was the last note I had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are cases in the literature uh, of people with severe a highly progressed multiple sclerosis, having their symptoms turn around. And in fact, I've seen it believe what, uh, uh, provide what I believe to be great benefit for two patients with multiple sclerosis in my practice. There's a case of an autoimmune condition, this is a mouthful, called idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP, reversing after fecal transplant. There's uh, a case of sepsis reversing. There's um, uh, a possibly a case of Parkinson's uh, reversing. Um, I wonder if, if this field could benefit from um, experimenting with fecal san- transplants from other cultures. Very good question. There's a, uh, a cool, oh, this is something your listeners might want to know about. If you want to look at your own gut microbiome, there's a couple ways to do it, and one is called the American Gut Project. So for 99 bucks, you right. can send them some stool samples, uh, a stool sample, um, and, and you'll get back the results of essentially who, it's just a snapshot, who is living in your gut at, in that part of your stool in that moment. And you get slightly different results if you take a sample from one end of the poop and versus the other, you know, so even a single stool sample isn't completely homogenous. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting snapshot. And uh, one of the guys who founded that basically was founded by a microbiologist named Rob Knight, who's in California now, and uh, a guy, I think his name's Jeff Leach who uh, is just an interesting guy. And so in addition to doing all this stuff in the United States for the American Gut Project, they do this work sampling, getting stool samples from 
uh, this group called the Hadza, the Hadza. In, in, in Tanzania. I, that's, I read that article where he took the, the, yeah. the he gave himself the transplant yeah. from the Hadza. He did guy. essentially yeah. a recreational yeah. fecal transplant yeah. where he just took a stool sample uh, and, and, and a turkey baster um, and gave himself a fecal transplant to see what would happen to his own gut microbiome. So, again, you know, the risk of fecal transplant has not been totally quantified. But in my opinion, it's less risk than smoking cigarettes, probably less risk than drinking uh, more than 14 alcoholic drinks in a week, uh, probably less risk than driving an automobile. And for those of us with autoimmune or uh, severe inflammatory diseases or bad allergic disease, there is a lot of potential benefit. So my humble opinion is weighing the risk-benefit ratio it's an easy yes, and it's not rocket science to do at home, as long as you are doing it with a properly screened donor, because we don't want to spread infectious disease this way. Right, yeah. right. But, I mean, I think it was in that article that I read uh, where the guy did the Hatsa thing where he talked about um, there was a microbiologist who, in fact, I wrote about this in the book, but I've already forgotten. The book <laughs> isn't published yet, and I've already forgotten what I wrote. That's, that's the beauty of writing. Um, I remember quoting a woman who was uh, taking fecal uh, material from people in the Amazon. Gloria Bella Domi- I forget her name. Yeah. She's a genius, too. Yeah. She's working in, a, in an American university where I think she's Brazilian. Yeah. Maria, I'm forgetting her name. So she is married to Martin Blazer who wrote a book called Missing Microbes. Very oh, cool great book. book. I didn't know she was married yep, to him. Yep. Yeah, we have that Two book. geniuses married ah. to each other. And I'm forgetting her name. I feel very embarrassed. But um, she is doing this cool pilot trial. You have a bunch of listeners, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to spread this. Um, so she's doing a trial where um, they're taking babies who are born via C-section. And they take some sterile swabs and g- gather the women's vaginal secretions and use that swab to inoculate the baby's mouth and face right. and skin. And then they're comparing those to babies who are not inoculated, C-section babies who are not inoculated in that way, and they're trying to look for long-term outcomes. Mm. They're having a hard time recruiting, Mm. getting enough individuals who are willing to participate in the study because they don't have enough centers. So for any OB guides out there, if you have your own IRB or Institutional Review Board and you'd be willing to participate in this study and float this by them, um, they're looking to recruit more people. So... um, uh, uh, what's the best way to get in touch with her? Uh, I'll, if you find a, a, a website or something, I'll put the link on my website. Okay, great. Yeah. All right. I will, I will find, I'll email her and ask her what the link is that people okay. can look at to get in touch with them. Good. So this is for physicians, not for people right. who are pregnant. In fact, for physicians who deliver babies right. in particular. Okay. Yeah. Any OBGYNs out there, please uh, send me an email or look at the website. You'll see the link. Fantastic. To, to Thank research. you. I hope that could be a benefit. To yeah, you. that's. I, I think that's fascinating stuff. In fact, when I wrote about that, uh, I don't Casilda put me onto an article or, or maybe it's just from her own experience as a doctor in Africa, but she said that um, it's typical when babies are born to take uh, a tiny bit of the mother's um, 
stool? Uh, stool uh-huh. and put it in the baby's mouth. It's the first thing that happens when a baby's born. Who told you that? That's My wife. She practiced in, uh-huh. in the African bush for seven years. Well, certainly. So I have four kids. They were all born at home. And I will say stool is a messy business. I mean, birth is a messy, yeah. messy business. And sometimes stool is involved. Uh, of course. Of, so, yeah, it happens by accident, clearly. Yeah. Um, accident. Or, right, right yeah. by, by evolutionary right, yeah, sure, you know, right. necessity. Yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, but I will say there is a gastroenterologist of my acquaintance whose baby was born by emergency C-section and whose baby was really colicky, just mm. crying all the time, a parent GI upset, having a really hard time. And they uh, took a little bit of, I think the baby was three months old, and they took a bit of mom's stool and put it in the baby's mouth. Which I was, you know, I'm a, I'm a fecal transplant guy who I, I like make capsules. I spin it down a centrifuge to concentrate the bacteria and give people capsules to right. cure their C. Diff. But I was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> you put her poop in the baby's mouth? Yeah. And they were like, yeah, the colic totally went away. Yeah. So, uh, you know, even when I'm like, really? You know, and I have, I have multiple patients who, not on my advisement, but of their own accord, have made, just made a little poop milkshake and drank it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, gee, poo, drinking poo, that, that must be, I don't think yeah. that's good. But they're fine, yeah. generally, to my surprise. Yeah, well, you know, having traveled so much in Asia, I have a completely different relationship to shit than, than <laughs> most Americans. I mean, even in, in our apartment in Spain, we have an Asian toilet. Yeah. We have the squat toilet yeah, yeah. with the, the hand nozzle, you know, and all that. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, you can learn so much about what's going on inside your body by studying what comes out of it. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and I remember Andrew Weil talking about how, you know, he was talk- I think he was talking about vomiting uh-huh. and in the, the, a book called The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, uh-huh. which is my favorite book by him. Um, and he, was ta- he talks about each chapter in the book is about a different mind-altering substance or experience. Uh-huh. So there's a chapter on mushrooms and there's another chapter on sugar, and there's a chapter on cocaine, there's a chapter on vomiting, and all this. And the final chapter is about a solar eclipse. Oh, cool. And it's a great book, he, early book. It's, I think it was his second or third book. Um, but anyway, he, ta- he was talking about how it helped him when he was, um, he was uh, with these people who vomit every morning as part of their um, religious ritual. Huh. It's a cleansing ritual, which is very common in India. And he said it helped him to sort of become comfortable with vomiting to think that really the intestinal, the digestive tract is outside of the body. Yeah. You know, it's because it opens on both ends. So it's like a tunnel goes through a mountain. Do you say the tunnel's in the mountain or not really, you know? So he said it helped him like deal with the whole digestinal discomfort by thinking like, well, it's outside my body already. I'm just moving it from one area to another, you know? Yeah, that's neat. I teach anatomy and physiology, and I tell my students, if you swallow a penny and the penny comes out the other end, it was never inside you. Right. Because it didn't cross your tissues. Right. If something crosses your tissues, it is inside you. It can be entered into your bloodstream. But this is just, it's, it's outside you in the tube that runs through you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting to think of... Uh, uh, yeah, right, yeah, it's, you know, like even though I'm a guy who hundreds of times has put poop in a blender and blended it up and worked with it and, you know, dripped it on things and cleaned it up and, uh, uh, you know, sometimes I still am uncomfortable with bodily stuff. I'm like, oh, vomiting every morning? Oh my gosh, you know? Yeah. Uh, 
But I'll, I, I, the show is probably running over, but I, um, okay. So there's, um, so <laughs> this is a part that I think I'm okay having on the, the podcast. <laughs> uh, so the FDA has passed, has issued guidelines specifically about the use of feces as medicine. Um, but I did what is, as far as I know, the world's only urine microbiota transplantation. Mm. Um, uh, I, I had a patient who was suffering from um, very bad uh, urinary urgency and frequency, to the point where he sometimes would have to feel the urge to um, urgently urinate every five minutes throughout the day. Very bad. Uh, but only tiny little dribbles would come out. Um, and we were working up what to possibly do with him and what's the etiology. Can, his urologist was like, it's not infectious. We know that much. So maybe it could it be something else. There's a bunch of conditions. And he said, you know, I'm convinced it's about my urine microbiome. Isn't urine sterile? Yeah, no, no, nothing sterile. No. We, 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 we came up with this idea that urine is sterile because a long time ago, Someone was like, hey, pee in there. See if you can grow out any pathogens. They're like, nope, nothing grew out. That must be sterile. Uric acid. The uric acid killed the pathogens. Oh, um, no. Yeah, there are, there are organisms that are just living in the urine and whatever acids and everything that's in there, swimming around there, having a good time. Really? It is hard to grow out in culture. Mm. They don't like oxygen. They live in this really acidic environment. We don't have the right medium to grow them out. So now we use this thing called PCR or polymerase chain reaction to identify microbes. Invented in by a guy who credited it to LSD. Carrie Mullis. Carrie Mullis. He won the Nobel Prize exactly. for inventing it. Yeah. He called it finding a needle in a haystack by turning the needle into a haystack. So you're amplifying right. little right. bits right. Uh, to, to be able to get a better look at it. Um, and so when we use, when we do, when we, you can use completely sterile technique, put a catheter into somebody's bladder, withdraw some urine, and use PCR, and we find it's full of microbes. No There's a healthy urinary microbiome in the blood. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so we said, I think it's about my urine microbiome. Would you be willing to do a urine microbiota transplantation? And I was like, wow, I don't think that's ever been done before, but okay, let's try it. <clears throat> so I screened, I just had a, a healthy male donor, um, you know, we just did normal tests to make sure there was nothing unusual going on with his urine and he was healthy in other, every other way. And I, I prepped them both in two separate rooms. I used sterile technique and catheterized both of them. Um, I don't even want to think about that. Oh, yeah. That's the one thing I've avoided so far in my life and I hope yeah. I die before I ever have to You know, have. I had never been catheterized previous to this. And so I said, if I'm doing this to them, Oh, you self-catheterize? I'm going to self-catheterize you myself. You kinky fucker, you. I almost passed out from the pain. <laughs> Some people get off my on bathroom. it. Oh, my I God. I almost passed out. Yeah. That was intense. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm going to really respect that I'm doing this to these guys yeah. and not trifle around with it, you know? Oh, my God. So I catheterized the patient, um, make sure there's, there's no urine in his, in his bladder by trying to withdraw the sterile syringe. Right. I go to the healthy donor, use a sterile syringe to withdraw, uh, I think it was 160 milliliters of the donor's urine, go right over to the room with the, uh, the, the patient, the sick person, and attach that syringe and inject that up the catheter into his bladder. And then I had him roll around a little bit to try and spread it around the bladder. 
so, so urine microbiotransplantation, um, which unfortunately did not help him. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, it's an N of one, that single one. Right. Um, uh, I mean, we actually, we did it a couple days in a row. Uh, but for that patient, it did not benefit. Mm. Is it possible that urine microbiota transplantation could be a therapy that could be helpful for someone in the world? Well, yeah, possible. Well, urinary tract infections are a huge problem for yes. women, right? Yes. Yeah. And I've also even considered vaginal microbiota transplantation. I haven't done it, but... Uh, right, yeast infections. Well, yeah, there's women that cycle back and forth between bacterial vaginosis or overgrowth of normal bacteria in the vagina, to, and then they treat that with antibiotics, and then they get a yeast infection. Right. And they treat the yeast infection with uh, antifungal agents, and then they get bacterial vaginosis again. They right. cycle back and forth. And uh, I think possibly if we could figure out a way to do uh, vaginal microbiota transplantation, we might be able to rectify that in some women. You know, that opens up a whole world of interesting possibilities. Like, for example, um, you know, there's a big mystery why people kiss. Uh-huh, right. You know, and they say, well, it's the mo- it comes from the mother feeding the infant, the pre-chewed food, and so on. But maybe it's just a, maybe it's a way of spreading healthy microbiome. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. because the oral cavity is full of stuff. Sure. Right? Apparently, it's one of the most... Uh, you know, cacophonous environments in the body as far as... Yeah, not compared to the colon, but, but relatively speaking, yeah, it's a, it's a dirty one. There's a lot. <laughs> well, dirty, but we, when dirty, we say dirty. dirty, we just mean populated. Yeah, populated. Right? We don't know that, that, that those things are bad. In yeah. fact, there are a lot of them, depending on what you eat, right, what you feed, apparently the problem with tooth decay is that, you know, the stuff that's in there eats the sugars and then excretes acids and that's what fucks up your teeth. Yeah. 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 Very interesting. Yeah. So, um, so there are, there's an oral sex too. I mean, you know, like if you're going down on a woman, you're getting some of her vaginal microbiome in your mouth. She's getting some of your oral. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's a penile microbiome, one might say macrobiome. Uh, you know, they're, they're right, but there's organisms, and yeah. it's not just gonorrhea and chlamydia and HIV that, right. uh, and, and herpes that we're potentially spreading here. It could be, or yeast, um, you know, it could be commensals or mutualistic organisms, things right. that actually could contribute to a good, healthy penile or vaginal microbiome. This is fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for doing this. My this pleasure. Is, this is a really special episode. Really fun talking with yeah, you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Um, do you have, for people who are in Portland or, or considering coming to Portland to, to be treated by you, um, how would they get in touch with you? So, yeah, my website is brightmedicineclinic.com. That's bright like the sun, B-R-I-G-H-T, medicineclinic.com. Um, and there's a link to a a bunch of articles that I've written on there, a bunch of articles other people have written that I think are interesting. Uh, and I think there's a place to click right on there to schedule an appointment if you have GI disease and you think you would like a consultation. All right. Yeah. Cool. Do you do um, web-based consultations? Or do people yeah, have so, to come here? Uh, um, so in order to make a doctor-patient relationship and get medical advice or any kind of medical oversight from me, they have to come to Portland. Mm. And I do have, you know, maybe... Once or twice a month, somebody flies in from out of state to make that doctor-patient relationship, and then I can treat them And then you can continue. Yeah. I do provide remote educational consults. 
that are not doctor-patient relationships, but someone just saying, look, I just want information right. and education about this, and let's talk, you know, I have medical care where I am, but I want to be able to inform them about this. So yeah, I do appointments via Skype or telephone for people like that. Cool. Yeah. All right. Mark Davis, thank you. Sir, pleasure having a conversation with you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, You don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osment, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now, completely voluntarily. Uh, He's a cool guy. So if you have any business you want to throw his way, please do. Thanks to Basin and Range for the opening music. You can find them at basinandrangeband.com. There's a Reddit tangentially speaking discussion group. If you want to talk about episodes, throw a question at me, get a conversation started at Reddit. Just do a search for tangentially speaking, all one word. And, of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at ShoreDesignT-Shirts.com. And, of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
it's a big deal if you want to be free say what you want to feel spend the night with me i'm gonna take you up in my arms and if we must go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground